Hey everybody, it's JT. What is on your holiday meal shopping list? Well, I would suggest Painted Hills Natural Beef. It is some of the best beef in the world. And your friends and family will be thanking you for a long time if you serve Painted Hills Natural Beef for your holiday meals. And now you can buy it online just by going to PaintedHillsBeef.com. Use the code BBQNATION at checkout and save yourself 15% on your order. Give Painted Hills Natural Beef a place on your table this holiday season. This is Barbecue Nation After Hours with JT. You know, the conversation that took place after the broadcast ended. Hey everybody, it's JT, and this is a special version of Barbecue Nation. It is brought to you in part by Painted Hills Natural Beef. Beef you can be proud to serve your family and friends. That's Painted Hills Natural Beef. Welcome to After Hours here on Barbecue Nation. We're talking with Robert Moss today about his revised edition of the book, um, Barbecue History of the American Institution. We talked a little bit, Robert, in the regular show about the culture of barbecue as far as coming from uh, African-Americans, some of it from indigenous people. You have to cook with heat. So, yeah, I mean, we've been doing that for 300,000 years or whatever. But uh, really the style, do you think the style, and and I'm going to lead you into this, one of your favorite subjects of these kind of regional sauces and different things. Mm -hmm. But do you think this style uh, had uh, influence from the original countries for example the the enslaved people that came from africa were their seasonings and stuff or do you think they just adapted to what was readily available you know where they were where they were enslaved well hard to, hard hard to tell for sure this is yeah. just so so little written about it but um what is interesting is a, a, i found a couple of english travelogues where they're describing caribbean style barbecue and you know, and what they what makes it different from English food? You know, it's called a very un-English kind of dish. Sure. And part of it is is the we I think we talked earlier the the cooking technique and and whole animals. But another one is that they were basing it the the cooks were basing it with vinegar with uh, lard and a lot of hot pepper in it. Right. So certainly, you know, where that pepper comes from exactly, um, you know, is that Caribbean influence? Is it African influence? It could be. You know, a little bit of a little bit of both, um, but that certainly seems to be something that is non non English for sure, and it was certainly <laughs> it's got flavor brought to the the mix. <laughs> it's got flavor, Robert. That's yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and just there's not a lot of uh, hot peppery dishes in, no, uh, in England. If no, you you're, well, um, they're getting better. I'll put it that way. They're getting better. They've become more Westernized in their food stuff, but they still have a lot of traditional English dishes that um, not always shiny when it comes to the taste buds. Okay. Um, we've talked about this before and other people have been on the show have talked about it, but I find it really interesting when you talk about the, the history, you made reference in there to a couple of people about the history of the mustard sauces mm-hmm. and the, um, now when they developed those, and this has been a while, you know, hundred and some years when they did this, did they have just mustard plants? Did they, when that started, did they have like a stone ground mustard? I mean, you, you poke holes in the German 
uh, theory <laughs> that they did that, which I found delightful that you did that. But, you know, the Germans were always kind of into stone ground mustards and things like that. Um, me, I'm people are going to think I'm nuts, but I'm, a, you know, French's yellow mustard guy myself yep. um, like that. So how did all that kind of come into being and then the variations of it? Yeah, what's interesting is that the um, the barbecue sauces, the, all the various regional flavors we know today, you know, the thick brown sauces in Kansas City, the, right. the white barbecue sauce in Alabama, that all is a 20th, 20th century phenomenon. Back in the 19th century, um, it, you know, if you look at descriptions of barbecues in Virginia or barbecues in Texas or anywhere, the sauce is all the same. It's basically a lot like what I think it was an Eastern North Carolina barbecue sauce today, which is vinegar with a lot of pepper and uh, you know, salt, black and red pepper in it, um, very spicy, but, but nothing else really, maybe as some melted lard or butter. And it was used primarily as a basting sauce to baste the, 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 the animals while they're on, on the pits. And generally the, the, the barbecue was served without any kind of sauce at all. It was more something that was seasoned and basted and kept moist with. But really in the 20th century, as, as restaurants started to develop, that's where you start seeing these sauce uh, recipes um, coming around. And it's also when commercial condiments like mustard and ketchup and things like that became available. So really the 20s and 30s, when you start seeing barbecue sauces with sugar in them, barbecue sauces with mustard, with ketchup, that type of thing. And so you ask about the, the mustard, um, you know, there's a, some, been a lot of speculation <laughs> that the Germans were responsible for the mustard sauce. And the line of thinking goes, well, Germans love mustard and they love to eat mustard with pork. You know, it's a traditional condiment sure. in Germany. And then in the Midlands of South Carolina, which is where mustard sauce sort of originated, there was a, a lot of German settlement. In fact, it's a, an area called Dutch Fork uh, right outside of Columbia in the middle part of the state. It's Dutch after the Deutsch. Yep. Uh, but that was populated by German settlers in the 18th century. So somehow either like, you know, these Germans came here and for 150, 200 years, their mustard preference sort of laid buried in torment while they're eating vinegar sauce. And all of a sudden in the 20th century came up with it or somebody else just came up with, started using commercial mustard uh, in the, in the 20th century when it became available. I suspect that's what, ha what, what's happened. Um, the number of families, the messengers here in the, the Midlands have claimed that they, uh, their patriarch, patriarch Joe Bessinger formulated the first mustard sauce. There's some other families like the family that runs Sweatman's, claimed or, or founded Sweatman's claimed it, it dated back from the early 20th century. But so it's not exactly sure, clear who came up with the first mustard sauce, but I'm, I'm pretty certain that it was a 20th century innovation and probably started off with, if not French's, some other similar kind of uh, right. commercially prepared yellow mustard. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, folks. You know, I, I love to cook with Grey Poupon and some of those, but if you take me to a ball game or it's a Saturday afternoon at a picnic and you're going to give me like a hot dog or a Polish sausage, I like French's mustard. There, I said yep. it. I'm, I'm the same way. <laughs> and, and there are a lot of chefs these days who are getting into barbecue and they like to make their own mustard sauce with 14 different, you know, mustard grain yeah. <laughs> and all that. But if you go to a sockeye barbecue restaurant they've got the big industrial tub of yellow mustard and that's what they start <laughs> off with and they'll put brown sugar and honey and maybe some uh you know maybe a little vinegar and yeah and, and maybe a little red pepper but yeah you, you just need the good old plain white stuff because you're going to make it in bulk and it's not supposed to cost you you know a thousand dollars to make 
One thing I've learned about all my years of cooking on TV and stuff, if you're going to do something like that, and if you've got more than three or four ingredients, <laughs> you lose your audience. They're not going to try to make that at home. Trust me, yeah. they're not going to do it because they don't want to go to the waste the time and the effort. They would rather grab a bottle of French's, you know, like you say, maybe put some vinegar, some brown sugar in it, whatever they're going to do, whip it up. It's done. That's, yeah. you know. Certainly my mustard sauce recipe, I can make just about any time because I always have those ingredients yeah. in my pantry. It's not like I have to go to the store and buy some special ingredients to make <laughs> my barbecue sauce. <laughs> um. We we didn't talk about uh, it's it's similar to the hash, but Brunswick stew. Mm -hmm. um, what's the variations of that? Oh, Brunswick stew is a, a loaded topic because uh, the Virginians and the Georgians uh, will, have been feuding for years over who invented Brunswick stew because right. there's a uh, Brunswick County, Virginia, and then there's a Brunswick, uh, Georgia, and. Um, <laughs> It's in the book, but I, I I try to parse through that once and for all and settle it. Uh, Frederick Stewart originated in Virginia uh, back before the Civil War, early early 19th century. Um, and it really started off as a hunting stew, um, originally made with squirrels uh, from, from from squirrel hunting, um, and then various you know over time various other ingredients got added in. So your typical Brunswick stew will be a mix of some you know. These days, very, very little, very rare to find it with squirrel, but usually chicken or, or, or pork. And um, and then a Brunswick stew tends to, unlike a, a hash in South Carolina, Brunswick stews will have a lot of vegetables in it. So people will put corn, they'll put tomatoes, they'll put uh, carrots, they'll put green peas, just about anything will sure. show up in a, in a Brunswick stew. A lot of tomato, you know, it is a red stew. It, but like the uh, burgoo or like hash, it is slow simmered for a long time. The best Brunswick stews are, are cooked way down so they're not like a soup they're like a they're like thick, a thick you know, yeah yeah very thick flavorful stew um and though i, I give virginia historical credit I, I have to say i really like the brunswick stew in georgia better than anywhere else and i have this theory that the georgia brunswick stew is actually a cousin of south carolina's hash yeah um and you find old descriptions of it where they're actually you know in late 19th century or starting off with the hogs heads and the livers and things uh -huh. like that in the, in the same pot. It's just, they put a lot more vegetables in it than they would in South Carolina. And even today, the Georgia Brunswick stew is really cooked down. It tends to be very thick and uh, well, very, very almost gravy like, but you can always see the corn. You can always see the tomato in there standing out distinct, which is what keeps it different from a, from a hash. But I, I think it's another one of the uh, great, barbecue stews in uh in the u.s and it's, it's one of my favorites the um you know we talked a couple times about you know originally putting the hog's head in them and blah 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 mm -hmm. blah and i know to some people today that would just be grotesque almost in a way i i submit that if you go to other countries even to our neighbors to the south to mexico and not right on the border but you go down into Mazatlan or Mexico City or some of those. And if you get away from the tourist uh, traps and you go to the local open air markets, I guarantee you, you will find sitting on a table, a hogshead, at least one for sale because they utilize that. And one of the things that other cultures, and we've, and we've seen this in barbecue, especially in your book, they didn't waste any parts of the animal. You know, today we're kind of persnickety about that, even though, 
the last 20 years in barbecue, they've come up with these different cuts and different names for cuts of, you know, beef or pork or whatever. Mm -hmm. But we tend now to think of ourselves as civilized, so we don't eat the hogsheads. But there's still lots of parts of the world that do. And um, I can't say as I've ever eaten one, but I don't blame them for not wasting, you know, part of the animal in that way. Um, yeah, and for sure. And and so many of the great dishes in the world came about by ways of, you know, taking those pieces and making something delicious out of them. You know, hash being an excellent example. Sure. Now, out of all these guys that you, we talked about earlier in the show, the notables, uh, you have a spot in the book where it says notable Southern barbecue men. And of course, John Calloway mm -hmm. was there and Henry Pettis and Gus Ferguson, Pickenwells and all those. Out of all those guys, Besides John Calloway, who would be, you would think would be the most colorful? And that's no pun intended because a lot of them were black, but who was the most colorful in the way they, <laughs> they, they presented their barbecue or when they cooked? Uh, um, you know, it's a lot of times that's part of the show, so to speak. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly was. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that. So a lot of the the barbecue guys that are listed there, yeah, you know, I know more about them because they're you're know, listed as being the cook, and if, if you secure the services of somebody like a Pickens Wells, you would advertise, you know, that this sure. guy's cooking. So you know, come on, come on out. So I don't know a whole lot about um, particular, um, you know, colorful behavior per se. Though I got to tell you that um, Henry Perry, who we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, the, the pioneer in Kansas City. Right. I, that's somebody I would love to meet. Because um, everything I see about him, it seems like he's really interesting. Um, you know, gave back to the community. Had uh, is a, had it, I remember what it was. I think it was nineteen twenties. He hosted a a big barbecue for like five hundred, you know, free barbecue for five hundred older people and children uh, in Kansas City. Uh, everything for free. But he had, um, you know, all these great uh, signs on the wall, like, uh, you know, it's, what, what was the, his motto? Uh, My business is to serve you, not to entertain you. Yeah. <laughs> <Which I think laughs> <is great>. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> he sounds like a, just a, a tough, tough character. And, you know, he very, a lot of adamant statements about, you know. Yes. If you you got to cook it over wood or it's not barbecue. You know, that's the secret to, oh, yeah. to great meats. Um, the one thing you can say is pick. He was the only one that we that I that I noticed in your book that actually dropped dead doing what he liked to do. Yeah, for sure. Pickens Wells died uh, at beside the barbecue pit. Well, actually, he died. He dropped dead. He dropped. He he had an aneurysm, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, while he was cooking at uh, at an outdoor barbecue pit, he died a few hours later. But uh, yeah, he was he was preparing a barbecue when he just keeled over, and that was the you know. But his his last day was spent over over a barbecue pit. I'm not aware of anybody else who who dropped dead at at the pits quite like that. So that's definitely a dramatic dramatic way to go out. Yeah, and well, unless you read a Fanny Flag book and then they end up serving them. But you yeah, know, that's that's true. That's, that's fiction. That's fiction. <laughs> we hope it's fiction. Like yeah, I hope we talk. You know, one of the things you talk about in the book is to the you know that there was a time. Uh, not so long ago when barbecue was kind of in decline, especially barbecue restaurants and stuff, mm -hmm. because fast food came in. And then some Jay, Jay Walker came up with a McRib sandwich, and then the fight was <laughs> on again. 
give, give us your analysis of that. Yeah, I mean, really, I, the, toward the end of the book, I have the, the decline and then rebirth of barbecue. But you know, barbecue was was the premier restaurant food in America in the starting in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, long before all the hamburger joints and KFC were around. The roadside barbecue, uh, roadside food stands were all serving barbecue because it's a cheap way to get started and serve meat. And you could find barbecue. Oh, the, the earliest drive-ins, like the pig stand, uh, which is based in Dallas, is a barbecue restaurant. Uh, so drive-ins, you know, barbecue was a staple of drive-in menu up right. through the you know 1940s, 1950s. Um, and then, yeah, barbecue. So in a lot of the classic restaurants that we think of today, the classic barbecue joints, that's when that's the period when they were founded. But then McDonald's came along in the late 40s and really grew in the 50s and then other fast food chains like KFC that um, really started driving, you know, you know low, low, right. uh, low margin, high volume, fast food, just driving the cost down, down, down. And it became very hard for barbecue restaurants to compete. Um, first of all, you're cooking for 12 hours on a pit. That's a lot different than flipping burgers, a lot more in- inefficient cooking over wood the wood got more and more and more expensive um and it became very expensive to to cook over wood so you started seeing all the restaurants start switching over to gas cookers and these are the early gas cookers that really didn't have a lot of flavor to them and it was a hard business so a lot of um families who ran barbecue joints the second generation who grew up working in their parents restaurant had no desire to take over the family barbecue joint (laughs) so they went off and did something else and so you saw in the 70s and the 80s, a lot of the original barbecue restaurants were, were closing their doors or they'd be sold to somebody or the owners would switch over to gas. And it was really declining. Um, there were fewer and fewer uh, barbecue joints. And so it looked for a long while, like you know, the crib, I think, came out in 1982. <laughs> in the book, I call that the low point <laughs> of American barbecue. Yeah. Because <laughs> McDonald's pushed barbecue joints out of the way and then brought in the McRib as a, as a substitute. Oh, but the good news is that wasn't the end of barbecue. <laughs> that was the low point. And then it, it reversed and has been uh, rising back ever since. I've got a brother-in-law. <clears throat> excuse me. I've got a brother-in-law that lives out in the Houston area. All that good food down there. And he loves McRib sandwiches. And <laughs> we get in some great arguments. And they're fun. They're they're fun arguments. They're not heated or anything. But, I you know, I keep saying it, it's not even a rib. It's pressed meat. You know, like that. And he, I don't care. I love them. (laughs) It is an odd thing. Um, I will, I'll admit I am not in the McRib camp, but those who love it, love it. And they'll do it unapologetically. And they'll tell you things like, well, it's not supposed to be a rib. It's its own different kind of thing. And, um, but yeah, not for me. I'm not, I'm not uh, into the pressed pork patty with fake rib. Yeah. (laughs) Fake rib, (laughs) fake bones pressed into the meat. It's kind of like I've cooked a lot of chickens, but I've never seen a chicken nugget <laughs> itself. Exactly. What part of the chicken does that come from? You know, so um, and I've actually, you know, chicken nuggets to me aren't that bad for, a, you know, if you're hungry and you're driving somewhere and you can get 10 of them and some some sort of dipping sauce from them. I, I can I'll, I'll give that one. I'll acquiesce to that one. But the McRibs, uh-uh, not going to happen with this cowboy. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> Robert, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. And folks, again, the uh, Robert's, this is a revised edition. Um, 
the history, uh, barbecue, the history of an American institution. And I really think if you're going to consider yourself a barbecue connoisseur or a barbecue aficionado, I think that is one of a couple of books that need to be uh, required reading for you. I know there's no tests out there in the world of barbecue, <laughs> but I really think Robert's book is really good. And uh, um, stay with us. I want to talk to you when we get off the air, but I really thank you for sticking around doing the after hours. And it's always so enjoyable to talk to you, Robert. Yeah, sure thing. I appreciate it, JT. It's always, always great to come on and chat about barbecue. Uh, we will do it again. You can be sure of that. We are um, going to get out of here and we'll be back next week with another after hours. And until then, go out and cook something, have some fun and enjoy life. Be kind out there, people. Take care.